You're listening to sermons from Redeemer Church in Round Rock, Texas. Redeemer is a gospel-centered, missional family learning and living the way of Jesus in the suburbs of Austin. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open to Jeremiah chapter 14. Jeremiah chapter 14, I want you to open up your Bible, have it out in front of you this morning. Jeremiah, you kind of go to the middle and maybe a little bit to the right, and you'll find Jeremiah in your Bible. While you turn to Jeremiah, there are a couple things that I want to uh, tell you about before we jump into our text this morning. First of all, if you are newer to Redeemer, if you've maybe been around for a few weeks or maybe you're brand new today, I want to tell you about an opportunity to take a next step. If you want to learn more about who we are as a church, next Sunday, immediately following our gathering, will be our next Redeemer Basics class. And at the Basics class, we share more of our story. We give you some information about kind of our theology and our, um, our ministry practice and some of those sorts of things. And we help you kind of take some clear next steps on how to get involved here and become a more meaningfully a part of our church family. So we'd love to have you join us for our basics class next Sunday. If you are interested in learning more about Redeemer, we provide lunch, we provide childcare. You can find more information on our website. Second thing I want to tell you about this morning that is so exciting is that this, this afternoon at 5 o'clock, after the Cowboys win this afternoon, there will be an interest meeting for our latest church plant, Redeemer Hutto. And so we're super excited about that. So if you live in Hutto um, and you want to learn more about our church plant, Redeemer Hutto, um, you can find Joe. Joe, would you, where, is he still in here? Joe's standing back there in the back. He was up here leading our liturgy. You can find Joe. It'll be at 5 o'clock at Lamp Post Coffee. And for those of us who are here that are part of this church, uh, aren't going anywhere, uh, would you pray tonight? I mean, I remember our early days when we gathered with our core team and we were just an idea. Uh, we were just a calling that God had given and what exciting time that is. So would you pray for uh, Redeemer Hutto as they have their first interest meeting tonight? And, um, and if you want to find out more about that, let us know. We'd love to get you connected with that new work. Okay, Jeremiah chapter 14. We have been uh, studying the book of Jeremiah. We said this fall that we wanted to dig into the Old Testament. We wanted to see, uh, learn more about God, who he is, what he's like, what his character and nature is like by looking at how he's worked among his people of old, among the Israelites. The Old Testament is important for us because in many ways, it is the root from which the gospel has sprung forth. That we need to know the Bible, we need to know the story of God, how he's worked throughout history and what he is doing in the world. And so as we've been looking at Jeremiah, what we've seen is that at this moment, this point in Israel's history, things are not going well. God had made a covenant with Israel. This goes all the way back to Abraham in Genesis chapter 11. The offspring of Israel would be a special people with God, that they would um, adhere to his covenant. God would be faithful to them. God would bless them. He would make their name great. Um, he would uh, bless all the families of the earth through his offspring, through the Israelites. He had given them his presence to be with them. He had given them his law to guide them. Uh, he had given them land that they would dwell in, and that from that place they would be a light to the nations. But as we get to Jeremiah's point in history, Israel has been unfaithful to the covenant. They have dismissed God's law. They have rejected God's presence. They have defiled God's land. They have broken covenant with a good and glorious and faithful God. Things are not looking good. And so Jeremiah is appointed by God to go and speak to them, to remind them of the covenant, to call them to repent and to return to God. And what we've seen over the last six weeks as we've looked at chapters 1 through 10, we ended with chapter 10 last week. 
what we've seen is we've seen that Jeremiah has spoken to um, God's people about their spiritual apathy, about their cold hearts toward God, about their spiritual adultery, how they have gone after other lovers and rejected God. He, last week we looked in chapter 10 at their idolatry. Jeremiah speaks to them about their idolatry, how they have uh, trusted and looked to creation, palace things of creation and rejected the creator. And this is important for us as we've looked at this. I think and hope in many ways we've seen how a lot, our hearts in a lot of ways are no different, how we can grow spiritually apathetic, how our hearts can grow cold toward God, how we can look to things in creation to give us meaning and security. We aren't much different. And so I hope that as we've looked at this word, we've seen ourselves a bit in Israel's story. And so Jeremiah has been calling for repentance. But as we get to chapter 11 and 12 and 13, we're going to skip over those chapters. But let me just kind of sum up what happens. God makes it clear. God makes it clear. His patience with Judah has run out. That it's time for Judah to learn a lesson. A lesson through judgment. God is going to extend love through judgment. It's become clear that they are not interested in repentance, that they have ignored God's recall to return. In fact, they are sick and tired of even hearing from Jeremiah. In chapter 11, we're told that they try and kill Jeremiah. They try and shut him up. They're tired of hearing this message to return to God. It's clear that they're blinded by pride. You see, that's the primary theme that we see in our text today in chapter 14. We see the seriousness of sin and we see the danger of human pride. See, human pride, what it does is it causes us to not take our sin seriously. Hear me for a minute. That's what human pride does. It causes us to say, uh, yeah, my, my sins, it's not that big of a deal. God won't judge me. It's not that big of a problem. My sin's not that serious. I mean, God has more important things to worry about than the things that I do that grieve his heart. This is exactly where Judah is. Pride is to have such a high view of self that we diminish the glory and the grace of God. And I want to read to you one verse in chapter 13, actually two verses, chapter 13, verse 9 and 10. Look at what God says, that, that we're kind of turning the page in Jeremiah. God is going from warning and calling them to return, and he's now instead he's going to turn toward judgment, and he sets this up in chapter 13, verse 9 and 10. Thus says the Lord, even so I will spoil the pride of Judah and the great pride of Jerusalem. This evil people who refuse to hear my words, who stubbornly follow their own heart and have gone after other gods to serve them and worship them. He says, they shall be like this loincloth, which is good for nothing. For as the loincloth clings to the worst of a man, so I made the whole house of Israel and the whole house of Judah to cling to me, declares the Lord. Listen to this, that they might be for a people, a name, a praise, and a glory. That's what they were intended to be. But instead, they've gone after idols and they've sinned generation after generation. They've refused to return to God. He says, they will not listen to me. And so as we get to chapter 14 and into chapter 15, we see that judgment will be the result. And here's what I want us to wrestle with this morning as we get into the text. I want us to wrestle with the seriousness of our sin and the danger of of human pride. Your sin is serious to God. And if you do not think that it is, if you do not think that it's that big of a deal, perhaps you are in danger of the same pride as Judah. I want to pray for us and we'll get into chapter 14. God, 
we turn to you this morning. We open your word because we want to hear from you. We believe that your word is powerful, that it is authoritative. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would speak to us, that you would, Lord God, help us to see ourselves the way that you see us. Help us, God, to respond to your appeals for grace before it is too late. We love you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray this morning. Amen. Jeremiah chapter 14, starting in verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah concerning the drought. So God's judgment upon Judah begins with a drought. Judah mourns, and her gates languish. Her people lament on the ground, and the cry of Jerusalem goes up. Her nobles send their servants for water. They came to the cisterns. They find no water. They return with their vessels empty. They are ashamed and confounded and cover their heads. Because of the ground that is dismayed, since there is no rain on the land, the farmers are ashamed. They cover their heads. Even the doe in the field forsake her newborn fawn because there is no grass. The wild donkeys stand on bare heights and they pant for air like jackals. Their eyes fail because there is no vegetation. The judgment of God begins with a drought. And you and I have never lived like a drought, lived through a drought like what Judah is experiencing here because we have the luxury of water supplies, we have irrigation systems that can get us through even the driest of central Texas summers. But there have been some lethal droughts across the world in recent history. In 2008, there was a drought that was very severe in Spain, and if it hadn't been for France sending ship after ship after ship with water, many, many more people would have died than what died. In 2011, there was a severe drought that hit the northern horn of Africa where crops died, there was famine, livestock was dead. There are some pictures, if you even Google just 2011 African drought, you can see the carnage. These kinds of droughts do happen. And these more recent droughts that I've talked about are the result of the fallenness of creation. Creation is broken. The Bible says that it is groaning for redemption. It's the same reason that we have things like hurricanes and other natural disasters. All creation is feeling the pangs and the effects of sin and its brokenness. But this particular drought that hits in the 600 BCs among Judah, it is a direct result of the judgment of God. God is judging his people, and it is severe. There is no water, we're told, no rain, no grass, no vegetation. We're told that people are mourning and languishing and lamenting. They're at the gates of the city crying out. It's not a pretty sight. In fact, what's happening here is that God is revealing what we looked at last week. God is proving the point that we made in chapter 10, that idols are powerless, that the people of Judah had been going up on the high hills. They had been worshiping the Baals, looking to the foreign gods, thinking that the foreign gods would send down the rains to water their crops, and God is essentially showing them the powerlessness of their idols. The things they've been looking to and trusting in are now proving to be worthless. Even those, we're told, who have wealth, the nobles, the people who put their hope and their trust in their comforts and in their resources, send out their servants to the wells to draw water, and they come back with empty buckets, and they're dismayed. They're confounded. They're realizing the real emptiness of their wealth and their status. They're realizing the finiteness of their comforts. The farmers are, are, are ashamed, the text tells us. They're realizing that in their human power, they are limited. They are powerless. 
You see, it doesn't take much for our little worlds to crumble, does it? And that's exactly what the people of Judah are experiencing as God is pouring out judgment. And this should humble us. This should humble them. But does it? Look at verse 7. Let's see how they respond. They say in verse 7, Though our iniquities testify against us, act, O Lord, for your name's sake, for our backslidings are many. We have sinned against you. O you, hope of Israel, its Savior, in time of trouble, why should you be like a stranger in the land, like a traveler who turns aside to tarry for a night? Why should you be like a man confused, like a mighty warrior who cannot save? Yet you, O Lord, are in the midst of us, and we are called by your name. Do not leave us. Now, this is interesting what they say here. Don't miss this. This cry for help, this return to God in a sense, this is essentially what's happening. They didn't want to pay attention to Jeremiah. They weren't interested in his word. They didn't care about God's law. They, in their pride, thought that God would never really judge them or that they would never really kind of reap what they sow, if you will. They would never experience the consequential nature of their sin. And now, all of a sudden, the consequential nature of their sin is setting in. And they decide, well, maybe we should go back to God. And so they cry out to God. And this cry actually starts off in the right direction. They say, our iniquities testify against us. They say, our backslidings are many. But then in verse 8... It reveals the true nature of their heart. It quickly takes a turn. Look what they do. They actually accuse God of being the one who has turned away. Don't they? You see that? They, they, they say, God, you're the traveler. God, you're the one that's distant. God, you're, you're the one who has left us. Don't leave us, they say. Yet they are the very people that have spent their whole lives trying to get as far away from God as they possibly can. They are the ones who have repeatedly ignored God's words through Jeremiah, God's plea for their return. They are the ones who week after week, day after day, have traveled up to the high hills and worshipped the Baals. What an absurd insult to a faithful God. And this should speak to us. This should speak to us about the danger of human pride. Here's what pride does to us. Our own human pride. And actually, I said earlier, it causes us to start to diminish the glory and grace of God. And we even elevate ourselves. It, pride dulls us to the severity of our own sin. Our pride will say, my sin's not that bad. Surely God will be okay with it. We would never say that, but it's how we function as we live our life. Our pride causes us to dull the, the, the true holiness of God. It causes us to assume that God is probably just fine with us. He has bigger things to deal about. Pride dulls us to his long-suffering grace that has been present in our life as he's been convicting us of sin and reminding us of his goodness and appealing to us with grace, yet we have never truly repented. And the moment that God allows us to taste the consequences of our sin... The moment that God removes a measure of his blessing from our lives, the proud will point to God and they'll say, God, where are you? God, I thought you loved me. God, why is it that this is happening in my life? Why aren't you intervening? And really what God is doing is he's allowing us to taste the bitterness of sin because he loves us. Our pride can cause us to act as if we are the protagonist and God is the antagonist in our lives. Do you see the danger of pride? how it elevates us to the seat of the good guys who are getting a bad deal when life doesn't break our, break our way and it diminishes the grace and the glory of God. 
This is exactly where Israel is. It's exactly where Judah is. Let's look at how God will respond to this cry. Verse 10. Thus says the Lord concerning his people, they have loved to wander. Thus they have not restrained their feet. Therefore the Lord does not accept them. Now he will remember their iniquity and he will punish their sins. The Lord said to me, do not pray for the welfare of his people. Though they fast, I will not hear their cry. Though they offer burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. But I will consume them by the sword and by famine and by pestilence. Yikes. Like this, is, this is harsh. God basically says to Jeremiah, stop praying for them. God says to Jeremiah, uh, though they you know, kind of kind of try and come back and do some religious duty now and maybe clean things up a bit, hoping that I'll change my mind, I will not change my mind. It's time for judgment. This is dark. This is sad. And we need to understand that this is not the way it was supposed to be. Israel was to be a light to the nations. God had been faithful to them and has been long-suffering with them. He had given his presence to them. Through Solomon, they, they built this beautiful temple in this promised land that God had given them. He had given them their law to be a guide, a blessing into life, and they've rejected God's law, and they said, God, we don't want the life that you offer us. We want the life that is out here in the creation. They've rejected God's presence. They had built idols all in the land and defiled the land. We're going to get mentioned in a minute of, of one of their kings. It was a wicked king who, who had put the idols even in the temple. They were defaming God's name among the nations. They were doing child sacrifices in the land. This is an evil, wicked people, and now they turn back to God. And he says, I'm done. I'm not listening. Your repentance isn't sincere. You are not lamenting and mourning your sin. You are lamenting and mourning the consequences and your circumstances because of your sin. And this is righteous of God. Rather than his people being a light to the nations, he will now make them a lesson to the nations. And it's important that we don't miss what God is doing here. It's important that we, as we wrestle with the justice and the judgment of God towards sin, that we don't confuse what's happening in verse 14. Look back at verse 14. He says, I will consume them by sword, by famine, by pestilence. What's happening here is that God is not like actively smiting them. Don't confuse this. God, God is not like, um, you know, thinking about, hey, what kind of forms of cruel and unusual punishment can I dole out to them? That is not at all what's happening here. What's happening here is that God is simply handing his rebellious people over to their own desires. He's handing them over to their own desires. He's saying, you want to look to the bales for your provision? You want to trust in the things of creation for your meaning and your purpose and your sense of security? You want to trust foreign gods, water your crops? Let's see how that works out for you. Famine. They're powerless. He's saying, you're impressed by the power of Babylon. You think that their armies are mighty and that their powers will protect you? Let's see how that works out for you when I remove my provision and my protection from you. When they invade you, let's see how they use your, their power against you. See how you like that. God is not smiting them. He's handing them over. He's saying, he's saying, you want to do all kinds of unthinkable evils in the land of promise that I've given you? Well, I will let that evil run its course in this land. Let's see how it works out for you. Do you see this? For Judah, the judgment of God takes the form of their own pride 
the judgment of God takes the form of their own foolishness and their own sinfulness. And what happens in the rest of chapter 14 is that we see that we see a principle. And it's that sin is its own punishment. Sin punishes us. That's the principle. Sin leads to death. It destroys our life. It erodes our spirituality. It destroys us emotionally. It it, it will mess up our relationships. And when the consequential nature of our sin sets in, God is actually teaching us something. He's offering us in love a lesson to see that sin is destructive, that sin is bitter so that we would see that the mercy and the grace of God is sweet. In the rest of chapter 14, Jeremiah is really pleading with God. If you, look at, um, if you look at verse 17 through the end of the chapter, Jeremiah kind of, there's, there's, there's this dialogue that happens between Jeremiah and God, and Jeremiah is essentially pleading with God. He, the reality is setting in that judgment is really happening. God told Jeremiah this in chapter 1. If you remember back to the beginning of our series, God said to Jeremiah that he was going to pluck up and tear down and destroy Judah and then the promise that he would replant them. So the vineyard would have to actually be tilled up. God's vineyard was bearing all the bad fruit. It was corrupted. So it was going to actually have to be plucked up and torn down and tilled up and destroyed so that it could be replanted. Jeremiah knew this was coming, but reality is setting in for him that like it's happening now that God isn't going to relent. And so Jeremiah even kind of starts to argue back with God a bit. He starts to make excuses. If you look at the end of chapter 14, he's basically saying, well, it's because of these false prophets. It's these false prophets among Judah that that are leading them astray. God, have mercy. He pleads God's mercy. And God essentially says back to him, he says, yeah, but. God basically says, yeah, there are false prophets, and I'm going to judge them too. But the only reason that those false prophets exist is because they refused my word and they appointed people for them who would just affirm their waywardness. And there's a lesson in that for us. That's another sermon. But there's a lesson in that for us, that we will find people in our lives when we're ignoring the appeals of God's grace and we're ignoring the conviction of the Spirit, how easy and quick it is for us to find voices in our lives that just affirm us in our pride and our arrogance. God won't have any of it. His patience has come to an end. The day of judgment has come. Look at chapter 15, verse 1 through 6. Then the Lord said to me, Though Moses and Samuel stood before me, yet my heart would not turn toward this people, send them out of my sight and let them go. And when they ask you, where shall we go? You shall say to them, Thus says the Lord, those who are for pestilence to pestilence, those who are for the sword to the sword, those who are for famine to famine, those who are for captivity to captivity. And I will appoint over them four kinds of destroyers, declares the Lord, the sword to kill, the dogs to tear, the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth to devour and destroy. And I will make them a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth because of what Manasseh, the son of Hezekiah, the king of Judah, did in Jerusalem. This is dark. God's answer to Jeremiah's plea for mercy is clear. Judgment is the answer. He says, even if Moses or Samuel who are two of Israel's greatest leaders, two of Israel's greatest intercessors. He says, even if Moses and Samuel were standing before me pleading like you are, Jeremiah, 
I wouldn't turn back to my people. They have no more favor. This generation of, of, of Judah has no more favor in my eyes. He says, there's a penalty for sin, and their sins have been great. So too will be their punishment, pestilence, famine, sword, captivity. God is removing his blessing, and he's handing them over. They will soon be overtaken by the Babylonians, and they will soon go into Babylonian exile, and many will die, many will starve along the way. He explicitly mentions King Manasseh. This is God's way of saying that this wickedness had gone on for generations, that their sins had been accruing. You know, we often think, hey, my sin today isn't that bad, and we lose sight of the fact that our sin accrues day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year. And if we have no advocate, we are in trouble before a holy God. Their sin had been accruing. Their waywardness had been accruing. When Manasseh took the throne of Judah in 687 B.C., he led the people of God into open rebellion toward God. He ignored many of the prophets. The people willingly followed him. His 50-year reign, the Bible tells us, is the most wicked of any king in Judah's history. And God's patience has come to an end. This drought that we read about in chapter 14, it would be just the beginning. They would soon be overtaken by the Babylonians, taken into captivity. And here's the lesson. Sin is serious. God is holy. Sin is wicked. It grieves his heart. Pride is painful. There are real consequences for rebellious Proud sinners before a holy God. And God's justice will be served. Where's the good news? <laughs> Is there any good news in this text? Not much. Not much. Good news is coming. In chapter 16, we see some of it. We see a promise that there would be actually be hope of grace and mercy for the next generation. In chapter 18, we get a little more good news. We get a little more hope that the potter is going to refine his people, that the replanting is going to happen. By the time we get to chapter 20 and then into chapter 30, the good news grows and grows and grows. There's not much good news in this text, but there is a tiny, tiny little seed. There's a tiny little seed. I want you to see it. Look back at verse 5 and 6. In verse 5 and 6, God opens his heart kind of to how he feels about all of this. And this is important. This is where we see the little glimmer of good news. In fact, it kind of reminds me of the, uh, maybe the parents who had, has bailed their um, adult child out of jail three, four times. And yet they only return back to crime. And the exhausted, long-suffering parent who says, no more. You won't make a mockery of me anymore. Or the, the parent who maybe has bailed the or paid for rehab three, four times, even extends more generosity and lets the, the child come in and, and live with them only for the, their generosity to be abused and the, the, the child to steal from them and run off with their money and the, the brokenhearted, exhausted parent who says, no more, there's got to be a lesson learned in this to continue to enable you and let you make a mockery of my grace and mercy would be to fail to love. God starts to open up his heart a little bit and we start to see the glimmers of good news. Look at verse five. He says, who will have pity on you, O Jerusalem? Who will grieve for you? 
Who will turn aside to ask about your welfare? These rhetorical questions, they're echoed with, with an answer. He's saying, I have been the one who has had pity on you. I'm the one that has grieved for you, and I'm grieving for you and weeping for you even now. I'm the one that's provided for you again and again and again, yet you have rejected me, and you have not welcomed me. Verse 6, he says, you have rejected me, declares the Lord. You keep going backwards. And so I have stretched out my hand against you and destroyed you. I will judge you, he says. I am weary of relenting. I want you to think about this for a minute as we close. I want you to think about that last phrase coming from the mouth of the inexhaustible, all-powerful God. I am weary of relenting, he says. We see the heart of God. He says, I am tired of holding back. And this is important. This is important. As we wrestle with the righteous justice and judgment of God towards sin, we need to make sure that we see God accurately and we see him clearly. You see, this is more than God just expressing like compassion fatigue. Maybe you've felt that before. Compassion fatigue. Like, I'm tired of carrying other people's burdens. This is not what is happening with God. It's more than that. What God is telling us here is that there is a real cost to sin. When you're a holy God who is merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, there is a real cost. There is a real cost to sin and God has been paying it. And God is exhausted by holding back his judgment. He says, and I will hold it back no more. This is what we call the forbearance of God. See, by bearing the sins of his people, by holding back his righteous judgment, and his wrath against their sin. God has been carrying it. God has been suffering because of their sins. And he says, I am tired of it, and I will do it no more. And that is where we see the hint. That is where we see the tiny little seed, a little flicker of hope. We see that we have and serve a God. The God of the Bible is a God who will willingly suffer for sinners. Do you see it? Do you see the glimmer? That he suffers on behalf of sinners. He's a God who will allow himself, a holy God, think about this, who will allow himself to grow weary and exhausted, carrying the sins of his people upon his shoulders. And there is good news for us here. There is good news for us that this is our God, that this is the God of the Bible. It is from this same heart of God that the gospel flows. Hear me. Sin is serious. Your sin is serious. It must be dealt with. And the God of Israel, who bears the sins of Judah until he is divinely exhausted here in this text, is the same God who would 600 years later take on flesh, who would empty himself, divinely exhaust himself to bear my sins and your sins on the cross. The same God who would humble himself for the proud, to save the proud who would humble himself and who would take on the form of a servant, who would endure the cross and despise its shame so that the penalty of sin could be paid for once and for all. And it is the same God who is coming again. And when he comes again, he will judge the living and the dead. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8 and 9 tells us that God is patiently, right now, God is patiently holding off his return. He is forbearing with this world. He is suffering in love for this world, patiently holding off his return, wishing that all would repent, 2 Peter 3 tells us. 
Listen, if you were here this morning and you are not a Christian, I don't know how you could see the stakes any more clearly than through Israel's experience. You know that your sin is serious. You know that sin is consequential. You know that sin leads to death. And now you know that God is holy and righteous. And you know that you need an advocate. And the good news in this text, the good news for you, is that there is one who has come who is greater than Moses. There is one who has come that is greater than Samuel, who has stood in your place, who will plead your case before God the Father, who will give you his mercy and his righteousness. He will crown you with his love. Will you turn to him this morning? Will you turn to Jesus before it's too late? And if you're here this morning and you're a Christian, would you hear the same words? Sin is serious. Pride is painful. Let's be reminded of the grace and mercy of Jesus poured out for us and not play around with our sin or take it lightly or not walk in pride, but to walk the gospel road, to walk in obedience to God, to love him, to live for him because of what he saved us from, because of who he is, because of his grace and his mercy and his kindness. Let's celebrate his grace and let's live happy lives in obedience to Jesus. I want to pray for us. Ask God to help us. Lord, we thank you for texts like this. We thank you for chapters in this book that we might want to avoid, we might want to skip over. We thank you that they sober us up and they remind us of who you are. They remind us of what you're like. They remind us that sin is serious, that it's consequential, that it will kill us, it will destroy us. And they rem- it reminds us, Lord, that your grace is always available, is always present. Thank you for Jesus. We celebrate him this morning. We turn to him this morning. We thank you that we do have a great high priest who pleads for us. God, I pray that as we enter into a time of response, Holy Spirit, we invite you to move in our midst, to take your word that we heard this morning and apply it to our lives. We turn to you. We honor you. We remember you. We praise you for who you are. Make us Holy Spirit. Make Redeemer Church into a holy people who know that sin is serious, that grace is sweet, that love you, that will walk with you, that live for you, that we are a light to this city. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you are looking for info, find our website at RedeemerRR.org or download the Redeemer Round Rock app from the Android or iOS app store.